I almost didn't say in Jesus' name as I was ending the prayer. And how many of you guys, if somebody doesn't say that, are you just a little bit unsettled, just mildly undone? We're going to talk about that this morning uh, because we're going to talk about what Jesus said in John 14 when he said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And I mean, that's a steep promise. And yet it's true. We'll see some things about that. We're going to look at that later in the message. Uh, We'll wrap up with six things about that. But uh, for now, as we've been in John chapter 14, as those of you that have been here know, uh, it's the upper room. It's the last evening. It's the last day of the Lord's life. Remember, the way that they measured days in Israel was from sundown. It began the next day. Remember, it says that after he was crucified, they needed to get him in that tomb because sundown was coming, and, and so was Sabbath. It was a Friday night, and it wasn't, I don't believe it was Passover. It says that they were preparing, but it's the day of preparation. It's Friday, and they always did that. At any rate, a, a Jewish day was from sundown, and so here, Jesus in the Last Supper, it went from Thursday to Friday. It's actually Thursday night if you're looking at our calendar, but it's Friday. It's the day that he would go to the cross. And so here we have five hours of intense study, uh, not study, but teaching that, that he, we study this five hours, but, but the, the five hours of teaching that he did, very, very significant, packed. Uh, remember, uh, I shared with you not long ago that if this last three and a half years had the same intensity, the same amount of information, it would fill 15 Bibles. And so this is a very, very significant point in the Lord Jesus' earthly life because it's about to end. And he has very important things that he wants to communicate to his guys. Uh, he knows them better than they know themselves. And he, he's, what, part of what he's doing here is he's weaning them from the transient, from, from the temporal, because he wants to fix their eyes on the things of the kingdom. He wants them to be heavenly minded as it is and, and to grasp the things that he's talking about. And he knows they won't fully grasp until uh, three days from now when he on Sunday would be out of that tomb and resurrected and they will begin to understand the things that he's been laying out all along. Over and over we see here in the gospels where it says they didn't understand it just then, but they would. And Jesus would tell them, I know you can't, you can't get this now. You, you're not going to understand, but you will because they had to live through it. Part of what we're going to look at today is if you take away any knowledge just, and, and it's hard for us to do because we know this story so well, those of us that are Christians and that are walking with the Lord, you take away any knowledge of the cross and the resurrection, you would be in exactly the same place as these 11 guys in that upper room. And they would be in a place where they would be scratching their heads. And I mean, Peter has just gotten stuck on, what do you mean you're leaving? What do you, I see you're leaving? What are you, we're supposed to be setting up your kingdom. What's going on? And, and yet he's being honest and he's being transparent and we can't fault him for that, nor can we fault Philip or Andrew or the other guys that are here because they're simply trying to grasp what Jesus is doing. And we're going to look at that as we go along. So he's giving these parting thoughts, these departing thoughts that he has, this teaching for his men, because he knows the clock is counting down. He's telling them that he's going to leave, but he's, he's saying, I'm going to go from you, but I want you to understand I'm doing this for you. 
and, and they're scratching their heads still, how do you do this for us? There's sort of an enigmatic thing about that because Jesus is he's going to be leaving them, but he's promising them to be with them. And it was perplexing to them. They couldn't get it. And, and they wouldn't for a couple more days. They would begin to have their open understanding opened. Remember the guys on the road to Emmaus, which is a little town. It's just a few miles west of Jerusalem. And they're walking with Jesus. And then he opens their hearts. And they said, didn't our hearts just burn within us as, as we understood for the very first time? these things that Jesus was laying out. And that's very often how it is in our walk with him, in our relationship with him. It's progressive. Yes, it's, it, it, we have so much. And if you look at these guys' life, how much wrong thinking was going into the things that they were dealing with. I look at Peter and I see, look at this guy here. He, he's, he's sort of kind of fighting Jesus all the way. You can't wash my feet. No, where are you going? No, 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 I'll go with you. I'll die for you. I'll go to jail for you, Jesus. And, and he's just so kind of pumped up on all of this. And yet you look at him and the wrong thinking that was driving that, but then you go back and you read First and Second Peter and you, you, I marvel at the godly wisdom, at the depth of this man at how life and his experience with Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life, which we'll get to next week, how it had shaped him and shaped his thinking and informed him in ways that he couldn't have any other way. He's describing his mission in part by placing heaven in front of them. Remember last week, look, week we looked at, in my father's house are many dwelling places, many abiding places, and I'm leaving He's talking to Peter, but he's addressing the whole crew. I'm leaving because I'm going to prepare a place for you there. Foreign to their thinking. Again, they had no concept of heaven. This was, they thought that Messiah was coming here to set up his kingdom here, now. And he's saying, no, later, there. And they're, what? What are you talking about? I don't get this. And so he's unfolding that and letting them know that this place that he's going to go and prepare for them would be beyond their wildest imaginations. And we talked again last week, I talked about that. I talked about uh, the place, and I'll mention that in a few minutes, but uh, he's simply wanting to equip them to carry on after he's gone. He's been equipping them for this three and a half years. And yet he knows that short of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, short of his very life entering into them, taking up habitation within and giving them the direction, giving them the the understanding that they would fall on their nose. They would not be able to cut it. I see so much garbage out there as far as relating to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, equating it to like a circus sideshow out there. And, And there's so much bad teaching that, the, the true ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is so beautiful and so deep, and it affects every part of who we are, that we're going to look at that in coming weeks because Jesus goes into some beautiful exposition as to the work of the Holy Spirit, what he's about, being the third person of the Trinity, being God himself, communicating the work of the Son, commissioned by the Father to us. So remember, as we look at this, we're continuing a conversation between five guys and Jesus. Uh, and there were 11 there. Five were actually have a voice in these passages. Uh, and as we look at that, I'm going to back up a couple of verses. We're going to start in verse 5 this morning. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? 
So again, Thomas is being transparent. He's not trying to take Jesus on. He's just saying, he's assuming that Jesus is talking about with this, uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you thing. He's assuming that Jesus is talking about across town or maybe in another area of the nation. He's thinking that he's talking about another physical locale and he's saying, you're going to leave and you haven't given us directions, Jesus. We really need that. How could we possibly get there from here? Uh, And Jesus says to him in verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We looked at that in a little bit of depth last week. But uh, as I was looking at that this week, I I started to think about other passages of Scripture. And this is just one, uh, the most quoted passage in all of God's Word, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, the way. He is the way, singular. He's not a way. He doesn't show the way. We looked at that last week. If you're lost in some town and, and, and he, he doesn't give you directions to get there, he says, no, follow me. I am the way. And so God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus, the way, and, and that whoever believes in him, the truth, because he's not giving us truth. He's the embodiment of truth. He is truth. There is nothing that could, it's not possible for him to utter anything that is not 100% absolute truth. It's part of being God. He's immutable. That's the doctrine. He's unchanging. He cannot lie. He, it is not within his character or his nature. Everything that comes from him is absolute, pure truth. And so uh, whoever believes in him is believing that he is truth, would not perish, but would have what? Life. So he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And that is a very exclusive statement, and we can stand on it. In a culture and in a world that says, oh, no, 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 you better not be exclusive about anything. After all, you know, there's a lot of different ways to God. No, there's not. There's one. His name is Jesus. He died on a cross. And unless you acknowledge that, unless you believe that, you don't go. That's simple. That's truth. Verse 7, he says, if you, and the you here is plural, he's, he's still re- re- responding to Thomas, but again, he's talking to the whole group. I bet the room was quiet as this dialogue is going on between him and the guys, because everybody sitting around this triclinium table, remember we talked about the three-sided triclinium table that they would have had that was a Roman table about a foot high? Everyone's sitting around kind of in a U-shape, and Jesus is talking, and different ones are interjecting and having dialogue with him, but everybody at the table is part of this conversation. So when he says, if you had known me, he's talking to all of them. You would have known my father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Why would that be? Remember, uh, a couple of moments ago I talked about, take the cross out, take the resurrection out. They could not... Uh, understand the full revelation of God because they couldn't understand short of the cross, short of the resurrection. They would only now come to know and to see God. Uh, A friend who's a musician uh, has a song, I've mentioned it I think maybe before, I don't know, but uh, in this song, part of the lyrics are, is you can see him with your heart if you'll but stop looking with your eyes. And in this show-me society that we have, and, and, you know, Thomas is a show-me guy. I am too. 
And it took me getting knocked around down a state highway going 60 miles an hour upside down to figure out that I really didn't have any control over my life. But you know, it's about faith. It's about, Lord, you said it, I believe it. Remember that old bumper sticker? He said it, I believe it, that settles it. I loved getting behind somebody who had that bumper sticker. Yeah, right on, yeah, because it's true. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it'll be sufficient for us. Again, I love Philip's candor. You know, we could take a critical view of these guys and go, huh, what a bunch of bozos. Man, they just don't get it, do they? No, they don't. They literally don't, and they can't, but they will. And their lives would change history. They would change the world through the working of the Spirit within. This is last-minute instructions. As I said, this doesn't get any more important for Jesus with his guys. And these questions are pure-hearted. They're also not met with criticism or condemnation, like, oh, he, uh, you know. And I, sometimes when I read the Gospels, I, I think about and I read some of these the goofy things that the guy's saying. I picture, I say, Lord, you know, I wonder if Jesus ever, like, rolled his eyes, like, you know, I, because... It, they just wouldn't get it. But remember, these guys are indicative of that whole population. We've looked at miracle after miracle after miracle and things that Jesus had said and done throughout this gospel and studying it for the last year. And yeah, this week marks a year that we've been in this. But it's what the people did continuously. He would set their, the, the view here and they would get to about here. They would not reach to where he was illuminating they needed to go and, and so he understands that this stuff is going to get unlocked and it's going to get unlocked in a big way when he goes to that cross because death wouldn't hold him and he would rise from the dead and now be able to bring power to those who believe power to live power to understand god power to discern the ways of god very very important so Philip is saying, show us the Father, and that, that'll be good. You know, it's kind of like Philip's in our vernacular, he'd be going, hey, show us the Father, and, and we're good. You know, we're good, Jesus. That, that, that'd be it. That's all we need. And we know that Jesus was the physical manifestation of God, but he also knew that down through the ages, seeing God would only be appropriated by faith. It's not about the physical manifestation of God. It's about the spiritual manifestation of God. And yes, he was in a body at that time, but that was for a short time. Three and a half years in human history is not much. But we have to come to him by faith. We have to simply believe. We have to come to him and say, Lord, I believe that your word is true. I believe that the things that you've shown me are, and are showing me are true. And I'm going to go with that. I'm going to put stock in that. I'm going to believe it as though it's a settled issue because it really needs to be. Because if it's not, then I'm going to be like that guy that James talks about and I'm tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It needs to be settled in our hearts. So when he's saying, show us the Father, as I mentioned last week, it is the desire of our collective hearts to see some visible and tangible object of adoration. I want to see God. I, I spent 10 years looking for God, looking for God. In, in my life, I, I sort of bailed on the Mormon church as a teenager, and then 10 years, for 10 years, I was looking everywhere 
for God. And I kept getting tangled up in these goofy organizations and studying with this thing or that ism for a, a year with like Jehovah's Witnesses and doing seances and getting tangled up in another cult at one time. And, and it was like, I just wanted to know God. And God was faithful. And he delivered me out of them all until that moment in time, uh, 35 years ago last week that I mentioned that he grabbed a hold of my life and it would never, ever be the same. Why? Because I saw him with my heart when I stopped looking with my eyes. Um, Remember Israel with the golden calf? These guys came out of Egypt. What was Egypt noteworthy for? They had gods for everything. Those 10 plagues that God did against the nation of Egypt back then, each one of those plagues was against an Egyptian deity. And he was saying, yeah, you want to think that your deities are so great? Okay, your your frog god? <laughs> Have some frogs. It, 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 they, they, they would do, he, his sense of humor just cracks me up in that whole story. If you really understand what's going on behind the scenes, he's just basically, it's like he lines up their gods and he goes, plink, 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 and he just knocks them over. And, and, and that's what he does. He does that with idols in our lives too, gang. He's still in the business of knocking over idols. And, and I love it when he does because I can see him more clearly. I can see him in a greater way when I get out of the way, when I let my puny understanding yield to who he is. But the people in Egypt did the same thing. They wanted these gods, these visible gods they could identify with. And so Moses goes up on the mountain and he's there spending time with God, really wanting to see God. And God said, no, Mo, you wouldn't be able to handle it. You'd cook, man. It would kill you. So I'll let my backside show as I pass by. And I could just rabbit trail on that. I love that story. But, but the point is, they wanted a physical, tangible God. So they take off all their golden, all of their earrings and all that jazz and they throw them in. You know, and I love it when Moses comes down the mountain and he hears, he thinks it's war in the camp. He's like, oh my gosh, the people are in trouble. And he comes in and he realizes it's singing. They're having this huge party. And, and Aaron's there, you know, kind of like the kid with his hands behind his back that got caught. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> what's wrong, Moses? And Moses said, what, what is the singing? Well, you, they, all the people, they threw their gold in this fire and this calf jumped out. And I think, wow, that is just like us, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes. But I mean, it, just trying to blame shift, that which was what happened in the garden. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in trouble on time if I keep going. But the point is, guys, they wanted to have a tangible God that they could worship. They named that God, that golden calf, they named it Yahweh. Look in the text, it says they called it Yahweh. They called it Lord. We'll look at some stuff in a few minutes that... Um, it kind of blows me away, but it's connected with all that. But the, the point is, is that Jesus here, Thomas is saying, show us the Father. Give us a tangible, visible representation. And he's saying, Tom, 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 wait just a second. Have you been with me so long? Um, it's, it, again, it's, it's amazing. He says, in verse 9, he says, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? Or I'm sorry, not Thomas, sorry. Thomas, but it's Philip. Uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And it's interesting because people, you know, I could be close to God and still not see him, not even see him with my heart. Uh, and I found a quote. This is from a 1903 Bible encyclopedia. I got carried away yesterday just, just 
I had, I think I probably had 30 tabs open in my browser looking at different things. Uh, and this is a quote, this is, I thought this was good. It's a forlorn woman discovered by one of our missionaries in the depths of Central Africa is reported by him to have broken out in the most affecting demonstrations of joy when Christ was presented to her mind saying, oh, that is he who has come to me so often in my prayers. I could not find out who he was. Isn't that good? That, you know, when God reveals himself to a person, he says, seek me and you'll find me. Knock, it'll be opened. And, and it's true. This woman evidently had been looking for God and she had been praying because nature itself attests to the, the fact that of his existence and, and that he is. And, and she's seeking him, she's praying. And it wasn't until she was introduced to Jesus that she went, oh, that's who he is. All right, I got it now. So as we look at this, in this verse, he says, I have been with you so long, yet you have not known me, Philip. We see that Jesus is the revealer of God. He is the one. He, in his physical manifestation, keeps talking about the Father, who you can't see. And he says, in, in, earlier in this gospel, he says, you know, the Father seeks people who will worship him in, spiritual, in spirit and in truth, and that he seeks those who will worship him in that way. Uh, he, in that sense, because if we bring someone to Jesus, we understand we're bringing them to God. So he goes on and says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In Colossians 1.15, uh, he says, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus is God. And that, if that's not a subtle issue in your life, it really needs to be because it's central to our understanding of him. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Holy Spirit. And, and that when Thomas is saying this, he's saying, show us, the, show us the Father, let us see God. And he's saying, Thomas or Philip, I mean, I keep calling him Thomas, but he's saying, Philip, you're looking at him. Don't look any further. I'm here. How can you say that? And again, he's challenging Philip's thinking. Verse 10, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, do not, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now, I want to pay attention to this verse. It's, it's interesting. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father? In the Father. And that the Father is in me. In me. Okay? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Interesting. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, the writer says, God, after he spoke long ago to the Father's, in the prophets. God spoke to the fathers in the prophets. In many portions and in many ways. Because they weren't God the Son. They were his appointed representatives. They were the ones that he had selected to be a mouthpiece. That they had a portion of the Holy Spirit. But they did not have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That he spoke in them to us. In many portions, in many ways. So there was a partial representation of God that went out through the prophets. And many, many prophets, I mean, just look in, in the Old Testament, and you'd see there were a great number of prophets, actually, that, that were prophesying in, in God's name because he was in them. Okay, 
So in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in son. It says his in the, in the text. And if you have a good translation, that the word his will be italicized. It'll be slanted because it's inserted for clarification. Once again, I think that's a bad idea because he's not talking about son bloodline. He's talking about son position. That he spoke in the prophets to the fathers in days past, and and, in portions and ways, pieces and parts. But in these last days, he has spoken in Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So what's being said there in Hebrews chapter 1 is that God spoke in, he represented himself in the prophets, but in part, but now in his son, in Jesus, the fullness of God. Uh, We see, the Bible tells us that in him we see the fullness of God in bodily form. So Tom's saying, or there I go again. Philip's saying, show us the Father. But he's saying, no, you've already seen him. I am, as it says here, the radiance of his glory. What that means is the outshining of God's glory in a body. And it's a settled thing. You don't have to look further, guys. And he's addressing, he's addressing the whole group. I am God, is what he's saying. And he's, he's the exact representation of his nature and the, the outshining of the Father's glory in Son. Verse 11, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. He's saying that unity between the Father and I uh, is something I've repeatedly demonstrated to you guys. Over and over again, he talks about, I'm doing this because the Father is compelling me to do it. I do nothing of my own initiative, but only that which the Father gives me to do. And Jesus is saying that it's because I am in the Father and the Father is in me. We are co-equal. If he has a thought, it's going to be a thought that I have. It's going to be something that, he, that is communicated to me. We are co-equal, and we share the same exact nature. Three different persons, remember? And, and again, a little Trinitarian theology lesson here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons. Three separate persons. One essence. Essentially, one God. How does that work? I have no idea. But that doesn't mean it's not true. I learned a long time ago that if I want to, you know, if I want to bank on the thought that the fact that if I understand it, then it must be so about God. And if I don't understand it, it must not be. Man, I read stuff all the time where people take that arrogant attitude and it's arrogance. It's like, if I don't understand it, it's not so. I mean, that's like going to a doctor. He's never heard of the disease you have. So you must not have that disease. It's like, what? No, it's there. It exists. It's real. And so... Jesus is very clear with these guys. Uh, He's saying, in verse 11, he's saying, take my word for it. Believe me. And if you don't want to believe me, just look at the last three and a half years, boys. I have done a lot to demonstrate this truth. So believe me for the works themselves. If you don't believe me, just believe in the works. They will point you to the same conclusion. That's what's being said. Verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I go to the Father. So what did Jesus mean 
that his faithful followers would do greater works than he. I want to outline something here. I don't believe that he meant they would do greater works in power. First of all, the greatest work that he would do, which he was about to do, was to go to the cross. We already talked about that. And when Peter said, no, I'll, I'll go with you. He said, no, 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 Peter, you don't know what you're asking. That's the greatest work he did. So it, there's not, he was not just saying you're going to do greater works in power. Uh, and if anybody here has raised somebody from the dead, please raise your hand. Oh, no hands? And I'm not saying that's because of a lack of faith. I'm saying that I, when Jesus is talking about this, I don't believe he's talking about greater works of power. I think he's talking about greater in extent. Let me explain what that means. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is given, and again, we'll get into the Holy Spirit, begin to sort of unpack the ministry of the Holy Spirit next week. But when the Holy Spirit is given at the day of Pentecost, Peter is imbued with power. He, is, he receives power, just like Jesus said. When, you know, he said, Terry, here in Jerusalem, and, and when, when the Spirit comes, you'll receive power. And Peter gets this power from the Holy Spirit. And, and we'll talk about when Jesus says, he says, unless I go away, the helper can't come. And it's expedient for you that I do that. Why? Because you'll be able to do greater works than I. Peter stands up, he preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and more people give their lives to Christ than probably the collective of over three and a half years with Jesus. 3,000 souls get saved through Peter preaching about Christ. And, and I mean... You look at that, you look at how Christianity exploded over the then-known world. I mean, it, it literally exploded. I mean, the Romans got upset because this thing called the way was gaining power, and you know, there was a lot of converts, and that was happening because people were doing greater works than Jesus could do in extent, as far as the extent of the reach. Jesus was limited to a physical body. He was limited to a physical location. Not so with the Spirit. Greater works will you do than I because you're not going to be limited by time and space. The Holy Spirit is not limited. I mean, he is alive and well here as well as he is in the distant corners of the earth. Greater in extent. When, when Peter can stand up and preach the gospel and see 3,000 souls converted, and I'd love to go through that because it's the polar opposite of what happens when Moses gives the law on Sinai and 3,000 people die ratification of the covenant, same day, same day. Anyway, oh, I'm going to stop. Um, but seriously, guys, he is talking about the greater extent, the greater reach of the ministry. And, and yes, do we have the ability to be used by him for miraculous things? Absolutely. I am not discounting that, but I am saying that it doesn't make sense that we would have greater power than Jesus. It absolutely makes sense that we would have greater extent and greater effectiveness, greater reach in the ministry because we're not, he's not bound to a time and a space like he was in a physical body. And I really believe that that's, it's really the, a basic understanding, but I believe that that's really, it's the truest application and understanding of that passage. Many people have misinterpreted that and they get up there and like I said earlier, they get this whole circus show going with the signs and wonders things and, and all of that. It, no, that is, Again, that's taking the view that Jesus wants, which is here, believe me because of the works. And coming up here, oh, let me just look at the works. See, it's a short circuit. It's a short, it's a stunted faith. 
and he wants fully developed faith. Fully developed faith says, I'm not going after the signs and wonders. I'm going after Jesus. And if he wants to use me to perform signs and wonders, fabulous. They will always be for his glory. We'll talk about that as we go along. It's important as I, as I think about this and I realize what's going on in this upper room at this time, Jesus is still consoling these guys. All of this dialogue sprung from when he said, I'm leaving and you can't come. I know I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. And then he gives them this great commandment. He says, you know, love one another way I've loved you. And oh, by the way, Peter, it's not about you coming with me now because you can't. You can't atone for sin. Again, take the cross, take the resurrection out of it and look at their understanding at this moment. They couldn't get it. It's unfair to assume that they could. But as these things would unfold and in the next 24 hours, they would be absolutely, completely blown away by the events which would soon take place because they would see their Lord who they knew was the Messiah bleeding out, hanging on a stick outside the city walls. And they'd be going, what just happened? What just happened? We were with him last night. He was giving us all of this instruction. I don't get it. I don't understand. I mean, I think about the sorrow that would fill these guys' hearts so shortly, and Jesus knew it. The amazing thing to me about all of this, folks, is that he is not caught up in his own thing. He is not thinking about what's going to happen to me. He knows he's going to be dead and in a stone tomb by this time tomorrow. But he's thinking about them. His concern is over his men. His concern is over the commission that they would receive and he's equipping them now for that time that they couldn't get, but they would. I think this is fabulous to reveal his heart here. He is consoling them and he's on his way to death on a cross. What a marvelous aspect of who he is. And I just encourage you in that, that, that I don't know what you might be going through because life serves up all kinds of stuff on our plate that we, we don't have the power or the ability to get through. We can't figure it out. Sometimes we don't know what's going on. You're not alone. You're, you're in good company. And he says, trust me. Trust me. If you don't trust me for who I am, trust me because of the works. The beautiful things that he's saying here to these guys. Uh, this is also, in verse 13, he, he says, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Really? Whatever I ask in your name, you'll do it? He says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, this is one of the most misquoted and misapplied verses in all of Scripture. Uh, my wife showed me a deal last week. I'm going to bring it up, and I, I don't mean to offend. It's kind of in your face because this guy likes to be in your face. And this is a false prophet. And he wrote a book a couple of years ago called Money, Sex, Beer, and God, Ditching Religion for the Joy of Incarnation, How Gnostic Dualism Invaded the Church, Killed the Party, and Taught You that the World was Evil. Hogwash. I, I was sharing this with our men's group last Tuesday night, and I felt the Lord uh, directing me to Psalm chapter 1. The first couple of verses says this, Blessed is the man, blessed is the man, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. 
folks, books like this, this one for sure, but books like this are the counsel of the ungodly. It just plain is. And what this guy is saying is these things, and, and I'm not saying that money is bad, sex is bad, beer is bad. I mean, but he, the word gives clear instruction on these things. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And, and yeah, we have to have money, but to, to, to pursue it, instead of to pursue God, again, it's a form of idolatry. The same thing with sex. And money can enslave you. I know what that is like. And, and it's called the deceitfulness of riches. And, and man, oh man, if God's blessed you with money, you need to be very, very careful. Because that can begin to become the object of your faith as opposed to the Lord himself. Again, with sex, sex is a beautiful thing when it's in, in the covenant of marriage, lifelong, heterosexual, monogamous marriage. And it's beautiful. But it can also enslave you. I look at the, the problem in our culture with pornography. It is huge. Because the inordinate use, the fallen use of that thing called sex is a trap. It'll enslave you. And this guy is under, in the name of God, is pushing this stuff forward. Pursue money, pursue sex, pursue beer. Again, I'm not going to make a doctrine that don't drink, but how many lives have been enslaved by alcohol? I grew up in an alcoholic home. It was horrible. I had a violent, drunken stepfather. And when he was on a, on a binge, man, it was time to hide. He was murderous. So I know what that's like. And, and when I look at this kind of stuff being pushed forward from allegedly within the body of Christ, so I use that very loosely, it's not about that. This guy says, ditching religion for the joy of incarnation. Because what does the enemy have to do in order to get traction in people's lives? He has to, he has to get rid of, he has to tarnish the original in order to bring in the counterfeit. And that's what this line is doing. And the reason I put this up, uh, the reason I put this up is because I want you guys to know there is a lot of stuff out there that will deceive you, that will rip you off. Uh, that it, you, There are things that if you ask, it is not in his name. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful or those who scoff. Uh, what this guy does is he scoffs at the true so he can bring in the lie. His name's John Crowder and he is a false prophet. He's a spiritist and he's uh, into this con contemplative theology thing. It's, he's about as far out there as it gets. But he's got a lot of people following him. We watched this ad on YouTube that he did, my wife and I, and, and it, it blew me away because as he went down the list, he was hawking this and hawking. The, he, he went down the list of things that he's selling. This is my book. This is my conference. This is the other deal here that you can get and be a part of. And every single one of those had a price tag on it. The sad thing is people are buying it. They're coming in droves because they have itching ears. And they're heaping to themselves teachers according to their own lusts. Like that. 
And church, we got to cry foul. I, you know, Jesus called out false teachers. He didn't have, he making bones about it. He loved people that didn't understand. There's a difference between somebody that doesn't understand, that doesn't get it, and somebody who is putting false teaching out there and using it as bait to draw people away. I'll read something to you, uh, and I'll try to go through this quickly. He talks about how Gnostic dualism invaded the church, killed the party, and taught you the world was evil. Gnostic dualism, just so you know, that sounds very educated, right? It sounds very scholarly. This is from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. What is the problem? A universe that contains much that is obviously bad and apparently meaningless, but containing creatures like ourselves who know that it is bad and meaningless. There are only two views that face all the facts. One is the Christian view that this is a good world that has gone wrong, but still retains the memory of what it ought to have been. The other is the view, the other is the view called dualism. Dualism means the belief that there are two equal and independent powers at the back of everything, one of them good and the other bad, and that this universe is the battlefield in which they fight out an endless war. I personally think that next to Christianity, dualism is the manliest and most sensible creed on the market, but it has a catch to it. In other words, what's being presented here is there's this great battle. There's good and there's evil, and there's this battle that's going on. Now, Mix that with Gnosticism. Gnosticism, it was very strong in the first century. It's very strong still today. But Gnosticism was saying that the material world was evil and the spiritual world was good. So when he's talking about dualistic Gnosticism, he's saying that we as a church have been ripped off because you know, there's this eternal battle going on between the material and the immaterial. And that's just not so. The problem with this, the catch to it, and I'm not going to read any more of what Lewis had to say, but he's in Isaiah 6, or 45, 6, the Lord through Isaiah declares of himself, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. There is not a competition between good and evil going on. God owns all of that. We don't understand all of it, and I'm fine with that. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. They're beyond my finding out. The thing is, he's given us enough. I can identify evil, even though I don't understand the complete nature of evil, that God allows it to accomplish his purposes. I don't get all of that, how that works. I don't think I can. I think that this finite mind can only reach so far before we start to tread on infinite ground, and we're not wired for that. But suffice it to say... Gnostic dualism is not what's driving the church. Holiness is driving the church. Purity is driving the church. Christ-likeness is driving the church. Yeah, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and the like. He didn't endorse their lifestyle. He reached them because he came to seek and save that which was lost. And so the point my friends, is not that we go along with every wind of doctrine because people want to have their ears tickled. And it's happening so much, and I am so burdened for the church in general today. That's part of why we stick to the scripture. You know what? We're a small church. We're not strong, but we do have strength. We're not big. We're not powerful. But we have his spirit living within us and in our church, in our body. And we're taking ground for the kingdom because if it says it here, we're going to call it out there. 
And that's just how it is. If we don't, who will? Who will? John 14, 14. Did we lose the projector? Oh. <laughs> Verse 14. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. He says it again. So what does he mean by that? The problem is not with the promise, but with the condition. He didn't say, if you ask anything, I'll do it. He said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Huge difference. In the third commandment, in the Ten Commandments, which were for Israel, they're not for the church, but it's good teaching. It's good learning uh, the heart of God. But in the third commandment, God says through Moses, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. A very small part, significant, but a very small part of taking the Lord's name in vain is curse words. We always want to camp on that, and rightfully so. It's offensive when people are just doing that all day long. But that's only a little part of taking the Lord's name in vain. What he's addressing here, and what I want to talk about here, is the vanity that we can fall into by praying allegedly in Jesus' name when we're not praying in his name at all. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So when it comes to Jesus' name, here's a quote from Billy Sunday. He's the great evangelist of the 19th century. Uh, he said this. He said, there are, there are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to take his word for it. Decided not to check that out. And I suppose this was because he was infinitely beyond all that any one name could express. Isn't that good? So when we're asking in Jesus' name, when we're praying in Jesus' name, there are some things that we ought to know. Uh, and I'm going I'm to temper this with grace. And this isn't slimy grace. We'll get to it at the end. Uh, slimy grace being license. Um, what is in Jesus' name not? Well, for one thing, it's not in any of the prayers in the New Testament. Nobody prays and ends their prayer within Jesus' name. I'm not saying it's bad, and I'm going to continue doing it. But understand some things about this. There are zero occurrences of somebody praying in Jesus' name in the New Testament. Another thing about it is that we think of it as an indication that the prayer is about to end. Okay, he's closing. Whew, boy, that's a long prayer. And we all have done that. Don't look at me with pious faces and think, what are you talking about, Pastor John? So it's not just an indication. Archie, you don't have to leave. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help it. <laughs> it's not just a way to end a prayer. Okay, a lot more to it. It's not... Open sesame. So often we go to prayer and we go down the list. And, and, and I think that the Lord's heart must break at times because he wants fellowship with us. He wants us to spend time with him. He wants us to come into his presence. 
And if I go to him in prayer and I say, Lord, give me this, give me that, give me that, in Jesus' name, amen. That's, that's not really a fully developed prayer life. Yes, it's part of it. He wants our petitions. Don't get me wrong. He wants us to come to him and to give him our petitions, to petition him for the things that we're dealing with, the things that we need for other people for, to intercede, all of that. But it's not, it's not just open sesame. I say it, he's going to do it. Well, uh, the last thing I have here is what it's not. It's not aligning his will with mine. How often, especially as a younger Christian, I would be upset because God wasn't answering my prayers. Oh, he was answering my prayers. But not just the way, just not the way I wanted him to answer my prayers. Because after all, I kind of had the idea that what I was asking for was good and it was great. And I was, you know, I, I felt very justified in it. But I would see that there was a subtle thing about that, that I was really trying to get his will to conform to mine. And Lord, won't you do this? Won't you please do this? Pretty please, with cherries on top, do this. It's not about getting his will to conform to mine. It's about acknowledging his will, which very easily may be very different from yours and mine. The importance of a name in the Bible. Ah, this is good. You know, in our culture, my name's John, and that means my name's John. But in their culture, a name was indicative of character. And, and it was strongly indicative of character. Jesus' name himself, his, Jesus translated Joshua, translated Yeshua, his name means God is salvation. And so what he was about was what his name indicated. So when he's saying, you pray in my name, there's a lot to it. A name in the, in the Old and New Testaments was indicative of character, personality, origin, or destiny. All four come into play with the names that you read. And sometimes I find it's just fun to go with a lexicon and to click on different names and to see what their original meaning is. And uh, it's just, I don't know, things like that amuse me. But, uh, so what about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord means master. Jesus means savior. And Christ means the anointed one sent from God. So when you call out the name, or you call out the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are coming to him, you're declaring that he's your master, he's your savior, and that he's the one sent from God. He's the holy one. He is the Messiah. And, and there's something behind that name. Remember that song? There's just something behind that name. Yeah, something about that name. So what, is Jesus, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? Uh, I want to go through six answers here. We're going to move through them rather quickly because we're beginning to dwindle down on time. Can we just change the services to like two hours? Yeah. It's funny, you see things up here, half are gone, some are gone. The first is when you pray in Jesus' name, you're confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about we now have confidence or boldness or freedom to come into the very presence of God, to come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. What an awesome passage that is. I can claim nothing but the blood of Jesus as the grounds for my prayers to God. Nothing. That's part of what it is to pray in Jesus' name. The second 
When you pray in Jesus' name, you're acknowledging that his name is the supreme name in the universe. There's no other name. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says this, Therefore God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when you're praying in Jesus' name, that's what you're praying. That's part of what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Third thing, when you pray in Jesus' name, you're admitting there is no power to answer your prayers in any other name, including your own. Had to throw that in there. Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven given to, uh, to men by which we must be saved. Okay, here's a homework assignment for you. Just one time this week, when you go to pray, pray in your own name. <laughs> that clunking sound you hear will be your prayers bouncing off the ceiling and coming back and hitting you in the head. There is no other name to pray by. That's part of what it is to pray in Jesus' name. You don't have to do that, by the way. I mean, that's silliness, but it's just to illustrate the point and, and to kind of graphically illustrate, sometimes we kind of can fall into praying in our own name because we really kind of think that what we are about is best and you know, we want to inform God. A little hint, he already knows. The fourth connected to that. When you pray in Jesus' name, you want to submit your will to his will, not the other way around, like I talked about, because he knows what's best. I, I'll tell you guys, there have been times where I've prayed and I've gone, Lord, you just are not getting this. This thing's about to fall apart. It's going to burn up. It's going to explode. There'll be nothing left. My life is over. Okay, so maybe I'm being a little dramatic, but I mean, I come with that sense of urgency in my prayer, and, and it's like, I just... Lord, you're not getting this. You, you really need to move. Man, my back's against the wall and all of that. And what I'm trying to do is convince him that my way is better. And for one thing, he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. But the other thing is, is that he sees the whole thing. He sees so much more than we do. He sees so much. He looks down the road and he goes, man, if I give you that, your life will blow up. And I'm going to hold back on that. God is, uh, I'll tell you, God is far more interested in what he wants to do in your life, in your heart, than how comfortable you are at any particular moment. And if you haven't gotten that until now, get it. Because it's true. He loves you. He's not out to beat you up. But he is out to do a work that's eternal. Remember, Jesus is... Part of his purpose is elevating these guys' thinking from the temporal to the eternal. And that's constantly what he's doing with us through the things that we go through, the, the circumstances that we face, the things that come into our lives. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times that the cup of, cup of suffering that he was about to take, that, that it would be removed from him. And three times, God said no. Three times. The Lord submitted to him by saying, not my will, but your will be done. That's a good prayer. That's a really good prayer. 
You've got to submit your will to the will of Christ. As he submitted his will to the Father, so we submit our will to God. Very critical. When we pray that way, we can ask whatever we want. And because we're submissive to God's will, we can be sure that our prayers will be answered every time. Bold statement? Yes. But it's very consistent with the bold statement that Jesus makes here in John 14. The fifth one, when you pray in Jesus' name, you want to ask that God's reputation be enhanced through the answer to your prayer. What do you mean his reputation be enhanced? I don't get that, Pastor John. What are you talking about? What I'm talking about is glory. In verse 13, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. To glorify God is to enhance his reputation. Lord, I want your name, the name above every name, to be seen in this. Lord, I'm not doing this for my glory. I'm doing it for yours. I want your reputation to be enhanced. And that's one translation. There's a number of translations for the word glory. But when Jesus is glorifying the Father, he is enhancing his reputation. When the Father is glorifying the Son, he's enhancing his reputation. That his reputation is very important to him. If you don't believe it, go and read Ezekiel chapter 20 sometime. I think it's 20. It's either 19 or 20. Where, Jesus, where the Lord over and over again, he recites the entire history of Israel. And then he stops and he says, but I acted for the sake of my name that it wouldn't be profaned among the Gentile nations. His name is very important to himself. Therefore, it should be important to us. We want to see him glorified in our prayers. Even if what that means is I'm not getting my way, I want God to be glorified. The last one, six here. When you pray in Jesus' name, you want to ask, to the best of your ability, because we don't always know that your prayers be consistent with God's character, God's will, and God's word. Very important. I don't always know what his will is. Very often when I'm praying, I'm asking to know his will. I'm saying, Lord, tell me about that. What do you want? What do you want to show me in this? What is your will in this? I don't know. And so... It's consistent with his will because I want to know his will, even if that's the case. So this isn't like, and I want, to, I want you to understand something. The reason why I have the word and down there is because there's one, I look at, there are principles. These are six principles about praying in Jesus' name. And they're good. They're solid. They're biblical. And there's an overarching principle that I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, I got to pray down this list of six things. That's not the point. The point is to pray. And when you pray in Jesus' name, to have your prayers, be, your thinking be informed on these things. But the last scripture, and I want to close with this, is Romans 8, 26 and 27. Everybody knows Romans 8, 28. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love him that are called according to his purpose. And, but 8, 26 and 27 says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. We don't know how to pray as we should. So if you're thinking, man, I'm going to flunk that list, Pastor John, every time. Yeah, those six things, I'm going to put those six things in front of Boy, I, I don't know. I just, no, no, no. That's not the point. The point is draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. 
And when you're praying in Jesus' name, you're praying a whole lot more than how you end a prayer. And Jesus promises. This is a promise of God. If you ask things in my name, I will do it. There's times when I don't know how to pray, where my back's against the wall. I remember being in a, in a, in a jail, in a prison one time, with about 50 or 60 inmates, no guard, locked in a room with another guy doing a Bible study. And this big, huge guy that I could tell he'd done a hard time, he was covered with jail tats. Kind of get to where you can read those things. And he stands up, and I'm going to leave all of the expletives out. And he essentially says, I got two murders on me right now, and a few more ain't going to hurt. Let's go. And my prayer life was this. Lord, 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 Lord. You know, it was like that because I didn't know what to pray. I just, I don't want the guy to kill me. He kill everybody. I know, I'm just kidding. But I mean, uh, my prayer life was very rich at that moment. And all it was was just crying out to God because I literally saw, and I thought this guy, man, he had fire in his eyes. He was upset at a, he was a, a, a black man who was upset at, a, there was a Hispanic gang in there and he, the guy kept interrupting and, and the guy, he said, knock it off. And then the guy kept talking. We didn't know that he was translating for all of his Latino friends. He's translating the, and I was praying, my buddy was preaching because we, we switched every week and, and this guy got upset and he stood up and he was ready to rock and roll and I was scared. Oh no, I was perfectly spiritual about it. No, I'm not fearful at all. No, I was scared to death. This guy was going to start cleaning the house and I didn't want to be part of it. But my point is, is that I didn't know how to pray at that moment. I just knew I needed to pray. So the Spirit helps our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When I don't know God's will, I fall back on this. Lord, I am just simply trusting that you've got this. I don't see the end of it. Man, I run every possible outcome out and it doesn't look good. Or whatever it is. I mean, there's so many things that we face, folks. But the point is, is yes, take these pointers on what it is to pray in Jesus' name and trust as you pray that the Spirit is interceding. That, that as I come to a place where I get hung up in my prayers, I, I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray for this. Lord, I'm praying for healing, but I, it just doesn't look like that's going to happen. Or, or whatever it is, yield to Him and just continue to just open your soul to Him. Allow the Spirit to intercede with groanings too deep for words. There are times I literally groan in prayer. And it's not a bad thing. I know that God's doing something. Trust that whatever you ask in his name, he will do it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, even now as we go to prayer, I'm just in awe, Lord, of who you are, in awe of your power, in awe of your majesty, in awe of the working of your Holy Spirit in us. So Father, I pray for each of these, your children, that you would work powerfully in the hearts and minds of each one here. We pray, Father, that you would accomplish your will in us, 
And sometimes, Lord, you know me, sometimes I say, put cotton in your ears because I'm going kicking and screaming on this, but I know that you love us and that you have our best in mind all the time, every time. Lord, let us be people who are committed, devoted to prayer. That in Jesus' name means more, so much more than the way that we're going to end our prayer. But that it means that we want to pray in a way that's consistent with who you are and with what your desire is and with what your plans are, and all of those things that perhaps we don't even know. So thank you, Father, for this brief look in the Gospel of John. Thank you for your promises, knowing that as we come to you in prayer, as we're praying consistent with Jesus, that you'll do it. So we give ourselves afresh to you. We pray you would go before us the rest of this day, and we thank you for all of it. And we do pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.